0: Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and I have a special co-host with me today. Danielle Gordy is my colleague at Aeron Lifestyle Technology, and she's in the product development area and works a lot with the subject of today's book, which is color. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Danielle.
1: Thanks, Monica.
0: I'm happy to be here co host along with <laughs> you. And would you like to introduce our guest today?
1: Absolutely. Today, our guest is Keith Rucker. Keith brings 35 years of adventuresome, insightful, multicultural experience in marketing, merchandising, trend, and color forecasting, and content development tool for his work. He is editor in chief of Table Magazine, a publication with strong roots in food and drinks, as well as travel, interior design, fashion and jewelry, and other facets of modern living in both print and digital formats. Recker is also a creative director at the Pantone Color Institute and a member of the Interiors Forecasting Team at the Color Association of the United States. Rucker's almost 20-year client list also includes global influencers WGSN, Stylist, and more. Prior to diving into color in the early 2000s, he was a home furnishings executive at Bloomingdale's, Gump San Francisco, and Saks Fifth Avenue. He also worked in the nonprofit world as a director of consumer marketing at Care International and executive director at Aid to Artisans, and has served on the board of art in General Chex Bushwick, The Quiet in the Land, and the Santa Fe International Folk Art Market.
0: Welcome to Writers' Voices, Keith.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you. <laughs>
0: Great. So the the title of the book that we're talking about today is Deep Color: The Shades That Shape Our Souls. And this is I believe your third book about color. Is that true? Yes,
2: yeah, that's right. The first wow. one traced uh, the arc of color usage across design, popular culture, etc in the 20th century. and I co-wrote that with a, co- a Pantone colleague Leatrice Eisman. And then the second one was 26 stories of natural dye and pigment masters from all around the world diving into culture and history and pointing out how a return to natural color could really be an answer for quite a few big problems we face today. And now this one, which is a real deep dive into the history symbolism, cultural meaning and connotation of the major colors um, in an attempt to show how active and influential uh, these ancient ideas still are today.
0: <laughs> now, whenever I think about color, and and we, you know, Danielle in particular, um, is very familiar with Pantone. We use the Pantone decks, we use the Pantone numbers and calling out the colors of the products that we make. Um, but whenever I think about color, I think about that scene in the Devil. War Prada, you know which one (laughs) I'm talking about, right?
2: Oh, boy, do I.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, where Meryl Streep um, basically chews out her new assistant, I think, um, I can't remember who played that part, but for, you know, kind of minimizing the importance of color selection.
2: Was she really pointing out, you know, that um, in that particular view, it's really up to a few select people, right? To make these big decisions for the rest of society. Um, Which it's interesting because when I think about movies and I think about that 1957 movie, um, Funny Face, where uh, a fashion editor played by Kay Thompson uh, sings a song called Think Pink. And it, it, it completely pokes fun at the notion, right? That one person has uh, has all the answers I, I love that one too
0: uh-huh. I'm going to have to go back and um, check that one out I, Funny Face, didn't Barbara Streisand do a remake of Funny Face?
2: No, this no? was a Fred Steele, Audrey okay. Hepburn
0: okay. I'll have to pretty check great. that out
2: Yep, it's so fun
0: So Keith, what drew you to want to dive so deeply into color?
2: mm. Well, you know, the, the, the first push into color I really came out of my experience uh, as a retailer and trying to decipher what people were thirsty for and how best to, you know, to satisfy those thirsts uh, with color choices. Um, after a little bit of time working with Pantone, I really started to question more deeply how color operated and why it operated. And this particular book, comes out of a series of lectures that I gave at my daughter's high school as a part of their unit on media literacy. They were taking a deep dive into how narrative is delivered, how it's framed, what the sources are, what the words are, in an attempt to give the kids the tools to step back and really look at what they're being told. Is it objective? Is it factual? Is it relevant? Uh, Et cetera, et cetera. So, um, the English teacher invited me to come in and talk about color's role in advertising, branding, packaging, and even in imagery used to illustrate a point, say in a newspaper or a magazine. And the kids asked such good, in-depth, penetrating questions that as time went on, I had to dig deeper and deeper to be sure I was saying the right thing with good references, um, you know, to really be responsible. in their course and that became that research that pushed to go ever deeper became deep color
0: wow now do you consider yourself um i mean what do you what do you when someone asks you what do you do what do you say do you you say i'm the color guru or what what do you say
2: (laughs) no I, i i do i point out that i do work with uh the design and retail sector of our economy to figure out the psychosocial, emotional, cultural needs that are coming, and how we can satisfy those consumer needs through color. What stories will people need to be hearing? What, what stories will they want to be hearing? What will they find satisfying, nourishing, supportive, energizing? Um, you know, aggressive, noticeable. Uh, glamorous um, and really trying to do that two three years out in advance to give people time to plan and make, you know, a really successful season for themselves and for their customers. That's really, that's really important to me that we nourish people with originality, creativity, and this kind of emotional vibration that we need. We, we, we increase in, in a consumerist society, I think in part we shop and consume to be satisfied, to make ourselves feel a certain way. And I want color to be part of that equation.
1: Working in the field that we work in, our team has dove into really what Pantone specifically has to to offer. Um, the resources and guides are, are so useful and, and the amount and the level that that Pantone puts into the research and um, staying on trend and what's, what's next and what's coming is, is just so um, it's illuminating and yeah. So I I personally um, feel like, this book was impactful to me um, to kind of to see the roots and and how the evolution of color has 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 came about
2: right i'm so glad that's really what it was meant to what it was meant to i think if you if you read the book you do get a sense of those root meanings that are so important and so influential Um, and I think you also get a sense of how color changes over time and across societies. Um, I love talking about pink, speaking of that song called Think Pink, because you see even in our lifetime, pink moving from, you know, that sort of feeling of soft femininity to playful Malibu Barbie, hotter pink to the, um, activist movements about breast cancer, about aid, fighting AIDS all the way up to the pussy hat, uh, that were pussy hats that were worn in 2017 and women's marches across the country. And now into this high fashion realm. Um, it's a fascinating arc, right? Moving from demure and in the home and classically feminine, uh, all the way to super strong, super power, super noticeable, um, and Pink's about to set off on a new chapter with this um, Barbie movie coming out next year, um, <laughs> right? You've yeah, yeah. The, absolutely. Yeah, you've seen some of those crazy costume choices, and who knows what additional spin Pink will start to take on um, as a result of some of that uh, some of that movie content.
0: Did Pink have a less um, kind of demure, feminine history prior to? Kind of modern times.
2: Yeah, the the word for pink enters Western languages really in the 17th century, so the 1600s. Um, you know, before then, it was basically just a function of red. But uh, pink, the the Latin word for rose, rosa, starts to get introduced in various forms in most Western languages. In English, of course, it comes from the flower, the pink the dianthus flower. Once you can name a color. You know, it starts to achieve a certain, it has something to it. You know, it's a cultural phenomenon at that point. It's not just an accident of dyeing or laundry or available plant mineral material. It starts to become a thing. And in the Rococo era uh, of France leading up to the French Revolution, so this would be the mid-1700s, pink starts to be this really interesting phenomenon. It departs from all the regal, heavy, red blue gold stuff of Louis the 14th and under Louis the 15th, this pastel playfulness starts to come into, into being. Um, so you see both men and women wearing these soft, delicate shades of pink and apricot, uh, full suits for men, capes, they're beautiful portraits from the era. In addition to, of course, women, Madame de Pompadour, Louis, the Fifteenth's favorite mistress, uh, wore a lot. Well, she was painted. Her portrait was painted with her wearing quite a lot of pink. And I have a little theory that she chose to be painted in pink because it kept her clear of the royal symbolism of red, blue, and gold, which could have gotten her into trouble with the king and the king's family, right? Right. So, very skillful choice. But it was not gendered. Even in the U.S. and in Western Europe, when you see children's colors, nursery colors you see pink quite often, maybe even more often, used for boys. Because red as a power color was meant for boys or back in those days, and pink was just a shade of red. And blue, probably because of its affiliations with the Virgin Mary, was more often a demure, sensitive <laughs> color for girls.
0: When hey? did that switch?
2: Really, it, it starts about World War II. There were regional differences in the U.S. Somebody did a really nice little study of advertising uh, with regional retailers. It was pretty much 50-50. Some regions preferred pink for boys and some regions preferred pink for girls. World War II really starts this tremendous change when all of the, I mean, millions of, of American guys went off to war, and some women too, of course, but but mostly guys, and when it was time for them to come home and resume their jobs out in the workplace, all of the women, the millions of women who had gone to work outside the home for the first time Kind of needed to be enticed to go back home. And it was used as a spoonful of sugar to sweeten up the kitchen, to make it seem more fun, to make it a little more lighthearted. And it took off. It was successful. And so you see mm-hmm. other companies, all the appliance companies were known for this tile companies, bathroom fixtures, dinnerware. And there was even a Dodge La Femme, which was all pink. And it came with its own lipstick holder, matching purse, and matching makeup case that was stored in a special little compartment behind uh one of the seats. You
0: know, my grandmother's so, house had pink tile in the bathroom. That's it. Yeah. There is a
2: there's a that about twenty five percent of the bathrooms installed in that year in the United States were pink. Pink, <laughs> pink, pink. pink. <laughs> wow. Wow. So it's really moment that it becomes this exclusively feminine thing um yeah and we're still you know we're still we still remark when pink enters menswear that oh this is maybe breaking a little rule oh how exciting uh (laughs) even now with hot pink all everybody's still oh wow look at that you know that's breaking a big rule
0: no kidding no kidding i i gotta admit you know i'm i'm um Almost uh, senior citizen era, and uh, and I, it's always takes me a little bit by surprise to see men wear pink. Although I, I gotta say, I love it.
2: A lot of people look good in it, right? It brings yeah. out some low in men and women. Yeah, um, I think it still stays around. Yeah. Um, but yeah, has so you know, been, a, it's been a of course the other so thing. Like
0: before. my grandfather's um, baby pictures, boys hmm. were in dresses.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because being until a certain age, was it five, six, seven, eight? I don't remember. Um, you know, babies were just babies; they were neither male nor female, really. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, it is easier to lift a dress to change a diaper than it is to take off a pair of trousers. So there was some logic in there somewhere. That is right? true. That is very true.
0: <laughs> Danielle, do you have some comments on or some questions about pink?
1: Yeah, actually, I think you dug into a lot of the questions I had because I, I did, I mean, pink's my favorite color, so I really focused on that um, section in your book and um, wanted you to walk us through the evolution of the color of pink, which you did quite nicely. Um, one of the um, interesting things that I that I read that you spoke about was during the Holocaust, and... Um, it was so disheartening to, um, learn about the thousands, hundreds of thousands of men, um, who were forced to wear the pink triangle, cloth badges. Right. It's I so them, sad.
2: But they're ganists, right? Um, yeah, there were many, many, many men in Germany. There was a, a law, German books, which actually remained uh, a law until the late 60s or 70s, which sent... Thousands of men in jail for being gay. And in the Nazi era, the gay prisoners had the lowest status of all the concentration camp prisoners, and a huge percentage of them died um, as a result of this poor treatment. Um, The the pink triangle had a little reappropriation. Uh, In the 80s, in the AIDS era, a graphic designer named Avram Finkelstein turned the pink triangle – uh, so that it pointed upright as opposed to down, which was the, the Nazi symbol. He turned it from sort of a you know laundry-worn pink into a punk-era hot pink, and he made it into a poster that said silence equals death. And I remember when that poster went up all over light posts and billboards and construction sites around New York City uh, as an early call to action that people needed to speak out and fight AIDS as opposed to just looking the other way. Super powerful reappropriation. And I think that launches pink, that plus pink being used as a symbol for breast cancer research and activism, right, which was started by Evelyn Lauder uh, in, what, 1991, I think. Those two moves really turned pink into an activist color as opposed to this sort of Doris Day demure.
0: Passive.
2: um, um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although th-
0: I, ha- I do remember reading studies about um, like painting prison walls pink because it does have a calming effect on people. Is that true?
2: That's what they say. Right. That is yeah. what they say. I did some research. I was trying to figure out, you know, is there any reliable definitive evidence about how colors affect us um, psychologically, you know, and health wise, so, you know, in part because of that that reading I did about pink the same as you with the prison mm-hmm. color. And the most compelling thing that I could find that I really believed was written, by, uh, written in a book about uh, architecture and interior design. And the author really took a lot of time to consider, okay, does red make you more alert? Does red make you work faster? Does blue fill you out and calm you down and make you peaceful? And the conclusion at the end of the day was, well, Maybe, maybe not. Hard to quantify, hard to define, but too much of any one color in the, end, in the end is not good for us humans. Monotony is not good for our attention span, our happiness, our productivity. So the theory that comes out of the book is you know, dip into color, use it for the psychological benefits that you think it does, but don't overdo it. For heaven's sake, let people move through rooms and corridors and hallways and have an experience that varies rather than, you know, forcing one color upon them all the time.
0: I got to admit that when I go into a house where everything is beige, I just think mm. it's boring.
2: It's safe. I agree.
0: It's
2: pretty safe. I was just on forecasting call yesterday, and we've been talking about uh, colorful beiges, beiges that are derived not just from the yellows and browns, but beiges that are derived from oranges and pinks and even blues, you know, investigating warmer grays that approach beige uh, so that we can have a tonal variation within product and environments that are still seen as classic and long-lived and safe, you know? Not to make it boring, but to make it long.
0: So um, most people, I think, are familiar with... the. The Pantone color of the year, um, yeah. or some, and usually there's a primary color and then a couple of secondary ones. But do you think they ever get it wrong?
2: That's a great question. Um, I approach the color of the year with a whole lot of respect. Uh, my co-author on the 20th century in color book, uh, my first book on color, um, Leatrice Eisenman really takes the lead on that choice. And she comes at it with decades and decades of experience, and she takes it very seriously it's a it 's a it's something that she does not do lightly. Um, so when it comes out, I look at it and I really think about it and really consider it um, and oftentimes I do find as I find with all color, I find really super positive things, and I find a couple of questionable you know even negative things, so I think they always get it right level. And then of course because it's you know it's a human endeavor, uh, you know, there are a couple of challenges to that as well. <laughs> I love the purple I love the very peri uh, color. Not necessarily because I dress with it or I live surrounded by it, but I thought it was a beautiful vitamin in color form to deliver to a world that has been seriously challenged by COVID and seriously contained and deprived of our normal amusements. And I thought, wow, you know, that's just a little drop of adventure. It's a little drop of electrical charge that we do need. And I, I really loved it for that reason.
0: I, I love that color too. I think that's a great one. As do I. My
1: bedroom's actually painted in that color.
2: <laughs> you you. you waking up in kind of a radiant dawn, like the most beautiful dawn ever. Right, that color is so beautiful at the beginning and the end of the day.
1: Absolutely. You wrote about yeah. your special relationship with the color purple and how it resonates with you personally. Yeah, Can you it does. Walk us through I, my... those early m- memories you have with your grandmother and how the color, how the color purple correlates.
2: Yeah, that's my my maternal grandmother, uh, Catherine. I named my daughter after her. Um, was super important. She was so adventuresome on a kind of, she would never have called herself an intellectual, but she was so adventuresome on an intellectual level. With the plays she read, the plays she performed in, the music she listened to, the people she talked to and hung out with, Um, she was such a great example of how to be in the world and be interested in the world to keep your eyes and ears open to you know, to keep moving. And her favorite color was purple. So I mentioned in the book, you know, there was one period she went through where she had these tall bottles and decanters with stoppers filled with shades of purple water on her windowsill so that she could catch the sun and see purple in her living room and her hallway. And as a little kid, you know, that's kind of magic. That's like Wizard of Oz stuff. So I have this great shimmer around purple uh, in my own life. It's all of our associations with color, you know, there's our, there are these deep cultural things that are bigger than us, right? The arc of pink is the whole social thing. But we can also have super personal relationships to color based on people and experiences and times of our lives. Um, and I love that about it, right, that some, some relationships to color are entirely of our own making and are hard even to share how deep and special they are.
0: Now, is very perry considered a blue or a purple? It's
2: right in the middle. Uh, I know part of Pantone's official language was that it was a red inflected blue, um, which welcomes purple. <laughs> yeah, isn't that what purple is? <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, very right, classically, definitionally, that is exactly what purple is. It's right there in red and blue. <laughs>
0: My my uh, favorite year in the Pantone colors of the year was 2016. And Which one was that? That was they had two: the rose quartz and serenity.
2: Yeah, beautiful moment. Yeah. beautiful moment. And it was, I was very proud of Pantone for that choice because it was the first time that the color of the year choice really took up something social, something that was really happening out there in the air, and. You know the the ongoing questioning, redefining, reinvestigating of sex and sexuality in contemporary society. You know that color choice really spoke to that, um, right? The loosening up of the definitions of male and female, masculine and feminine, the opportunity to kind of step over the boundary and create your own your own identity as a man or a woman. I was pretty brave. I really I really appreciated that.
0: You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Keith Recker, author of Deep Color, and he's also known as the, um, the guru of color, the poet laureate of color, <laughs> the poet laureate of color, oh, Deep good. Color, the shades that shape our soul. I like guru of color, though. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the poet laureate thing was, was a journalist uh, who was writing art. Uh, about, what was it, for Cranes, you know, the business publication, the business-to-business publication. So I I don't call myself that, but it was, it was an <laughs> honor.
0: <laughs> well, you are also obviously a very accomplished writer because um, the way that you dis- I mean, describe things, but also a, an historian. I mean, do you, the, the level of history that you go into for each one of these um, colors that, that you're diving into in this book, you go clear into prehistoric time, and then all of recorded history right up into modern <laughs> history. Is this something you just know, or, or did you have to do a lot of research?
2: Yes, to both. You know, <laughs> <I've>, I, <laughs> as a lifelong reader, as a super passionate lifelong reader, um, there is a lot of material stored up here in the in the Belfry. And at the same, in order to be very coherent and very correct and as accurate as I can possibly be, you know, I have to continue that research, um, you know, to make sure that I'm telling the stories that, that need to be told, that should be told, that are accurate. So it's a combination of both. I'm definitely leaning back into things that I read even as a kid, um, but I'm also, of course, making sure the perspectives are good and uh, on the way I find new stories and new wrinkles and new things to dig into. Thank you for those kind words. I, 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 the, the, I have to tell you, this book nearly did me in. Um, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> All the research. It,
0: it's quite amazing. I mean, you've got pages and pages of notes at the end and bibliography. But in each, case, in each color, you're, you're talking about religious um, history. You're talking about cultural history. Um, you're talking about linguistics involving that color, color names are, you know, so we've got the basic colors, but then there's all the different shades and all the names and somehow we keep inventing new colors. I'm not quite sure how that happens. Um, actually that (laughs) might be a good, a good thing for you to, 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 to tell us. And then how do, how do these names get determined?
2: Right. Well, the, one of the one of my favorite bits of research that that uh, I came across for True Colors, the book on natural color, was the the work of professors Berlin and Kay at Stanford University. I think they're still there, still active. They put out a study in the 60s, I believe, about how color vocabulary enters human languages around the world. And they repeated that study decades later and came up with you know the, the same conclusions they say that black and white or dark and light are always the first two color terms to enter every human language around the world. And some languages stop there. They don't go into defining color. They're more concerned with wet and dry, shiny and matte, uh, edible and not edible, if you will, you know, but when there's a third term, it's always red. Wow. Yellow. take turns being the fourth and the fifth, sometimes yellow, sometimes green comes first, but they're always, you know, jockeying for that position blue comes after that and then pretty much everything else, you know, then purple, orange, pink, brown, um, you know, all those just definitive, this is a color, you know, not the nuances, not like, you know, rose quartz or bubblegum pink, you know, those are (laughs) on on the core color. So um, I find that very interesting because it makes that ancient triad of black, red, and white, So central to our experience, the fact of day and night, the fact of blood and human life in both the positive context in terms of fertility and passion and love and the negative context, murder, war and bloodshed, um, that they are those three are just so complex and nuanced because they're so ancient. And more recent additions to vocabularies like pink and orange, you know, which come to us really in "quote unquote" modern history, 15, 16, 1700s, they're less nuanced, they're less complicated. We haven't had time to have our, you know, the worst of us um, imposed upon them. So think about orange and how jolly and cheerful it generally is, and how, you know, a Fanta orange soda. You look at that can and you don't feel conflict. Right. You feel like, oh, there's a little vacation with bubbles right there. (laughs) Uh, Or Tigger. I love that. uh, The character from Winnie the Pooh, Tigger, bouncy, energetic, buoyant, boom, boom, boom. Uh, So orange is is pretty, pretty amazing. It does have, of course, at least one serious usage in the robes of uh, Southeast Asian Theravada Buddhist monks and novices. Those beautiful flaming orange robes come from uh, an interpretation of the instructions of Buddha himself, uh, or really his first cousin, Ananda, on what Buddhist monks should wear to be correct. And this orange color is not necessarily what Buddha and Ananda would have would have created. It's a bit of um, you know, a layering, um, but it does come out of a Buddhist tradition.
0: Oh. And then, of course, though. orange as prison garb. How did that come about?
2: Yeah, that has to do with visibility, right? Mm. That uh, if somebody was running down the road in an orange jumpsuit, you would not mistake him for a casual jogger. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And it's uh, an interesting comment that someone made that when orange is the new black, made orange such a popular apparel color, uh, a lot of prisons stepped away from orange as a uniform color because it did not provide that clear distinction between – a prisoner, and a non-prisoner.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: Yeah, so definitely the color changes, right? And the, the rise of safety orange also brings some cloudiness, right, In the ability of having prisoners right. wear orange. Right. Plenty of us safety orange, whether we're hunting or not, is out there now in clothing and fashion.
0: That's a good point. Keith, would you like to read from... Deep color for us?
2: Yes, definitely. Uh, With your permission, I would love to read uh, the beginning of the chapter on red. Perfect. Okay, here we go. Red is a kiss, a caress, a loving embrace. Red is a wound and a warning, and sometimes a welcome. It is a symbol of power and a badge of shame. Red is deeply personal, drawing us into the sensations of our own bodies, as well as toward our attraction to others. Red is fertility and marriage, adultery and scandal, a call to action and a sign of moral decline. It stands for the warmth of the hearth and the scornful flame of vanity. It is beauty and it is violence. When we see red, the flush of anger pushes us to charge like a raging bull. And yet bashful blushes are signs of modesty or shyness or marriage. On the other hand, the red blooded among us bravely wade into danger in the name of love, duty and justice red blooded or no red hair once meant you were a witch quick to anger dishonest or more sensitive to pain nowadays they just call you a ginger red is not just personal it's political crimson flags harness red's energy as a symbol of revolution and communism but also convey ancient notions of the divine right of kings and the authority of their viceroys and commanders red tape is a sign that their authority has run amok Being in the red means you're losing money, and a red herring tricks and fools. Red meat stirs up the baser instincts. A red alert warns of imminent danger. A red temple gate in China or Japan signals that you enter a sacred precinct. A red light in Amsterdam promises carnal delights and brands proprietors and patrons with a scarlet shade of shame. Get caught red-handed, and you may earn that red card that gets you thrown out of the game. Wearing red, according to research conducted at England's Durham University, may carry competitors to victory more often than other colors. Victory and penalty, murder and maternity, kings and courtesans, temples and temptresses, passion and perfidy, am I alone in feeling dizzy by red's contradictory meanings? This color knocks me back. It puts me on my guard. Research by scientists at Dartmouth College suggests that something in our evolution as a species may set us up for that reaction male rhesus macaques were far more likely to steal food from handlers wearing green or blue than handlers wearing red suggesting that red may be an ancient alarm and a signal of dominance but that is not the only work red does it turns us on too women wearing red are perceived by men to be more attractive and more available while men wearing red are deemed by women to be of higher status and thus more attractive but not necessarily kinder or more likable The unconscious lore of red tempts even introverts like me out of the quiet places we crave with its suggestion of lips and skin and warmth and flavor and spice. Yes, it impresses with its commanding messages of authority, with its luxuriousness, but I do not trust it. Temptation turns into danger and appetite to gluttony. Warmth can burn. Authority turns to power and power to corruption. Red can go too far, exactly like people, which makes red the most human color of all. The color of our life's blood, the first color we see as babies, the color that follows us from conception to death and in between through everything that touches the heart or strikes at it. Red is the color of all of us and has been since our very beginnings. Words for black and white come first in languages around the world. If we subscribe to Newton's definition of color, however, black and white are not colors at all. Since red is always the third color term to enter a language when there is a third term, it can be said to be the first color humans define as a concept that needs to be communicated, used, repeated, remembered. Red is the first color around which symbolism accumulates, the first one to gather unto itself reservoirs of meaning and fill them to overflowing. Red has had plenty of time to develop its many layers. Archaeological evidence from South Africa's Blombos cave shows that humankind was using red ochre pigments over 100,000 years ago. 200,000 years ago, Neanderthals living in what is now the Netherlands were using hematite. Analysis of the geochemical signatures signatures of ancient ochre discoveries suggests that ochre was traded between groups of hunter-gatherers as long as 300,000 years ago. Based on ochre found at a site in South Africa's northern Cape area, some scientists speak of red ochre usage dating as far back as 500,000 years, though it is almost inconceivably hard to reach so far back in time with much certainty or specificity. Archaeological sites around the world, however, certainly place red minerals in human settlements from the Middle Paleolithic 40 to 50,000 years ago. Ruddy red mineral pigments bring life to the great European cave paintings of the Stone Age, as well as the ancient Southern African rock paintings of the San people and the red ochre wall art found in Indonesia, Malaysia, Australia, and South America. The images of animals speak to a worldview dominated by the dance of animal life, predators and prey to be sure, but also beautiful animals like wild horses horses, or owls who are not thought to have been a primary source of nourishment for humanoids. Eventually, drawings of bodies like ours take their place in various forms. While we can observe the relatively frequent occurrence of red ochre and other red minerals in human and pre-human settlements, we can't know precisely what the beings who collected it and used it were thinking. We look at pebbles, cave paintings, shells, and tools, seeing only what is left to us, which is but a paltry trace of the vivid beings who left these things behind. We can't know what other materials were used to create what might have been a broad rainbow of colored experiences. Bodies might have been painted not just with ochre, but also with red and purple berries, and yellow or orange or white earth. Adornments of tawny grasses and chartreuse leaves dotted with flowers of every color might have been far more important to very ancient peoples than the objects archaeologists have been able to retrieve. Rocks, minerals, bones, and shells have endured long enough to be rediscovered, excavated, catalogued, analyzed. The rest is biodegraded, leaving nothing at all behind, or perhaps only faint molecular signatures we do not yet know how to read. And yet, we wander into narratives that may put us on the threshold of what our forebears were thinking. Red ochre may have been a part of everyday life as protection from sun and insects, as it is still in societies such as the Himba of Namibia. As a beauty enhancer, like the lipsticks and rouges found in stores around the world, it may have carried more than a hint of vanity. Red ochre has been observed in some Neanderthal and other early human burial sites. Was there a connection between the color of animal life, the color of our life, and red ochre? Resemblance to blood may have been a factor. American artist Heidi Gustafson, devoted to colored earth pigments in her art practice, points out that adding any human fluid, spit, milk, sweat, etc., to red ochre, brings it to life in ways that generally resemble blood. Perhaps layering red ochre over the deceased or lining their graves with it was a way of strengthening the dead and opening the road to rebirth. Perhaps the power of red was called upon to defy death. A Maori legend comes to mind. It is the story of a woman who dies and goes to the underworld. She finds a bowl of red ochre there, eats it, and comes back to life. Is this a thread that could lead us back to understanding red as the powerful fire of life overcoming even death? Elsewhere in Maori cosmology, the blood of the Sky Father and Earth Mother shed in their children's primeval pursuit of the light and space they needed in order to grow is cited as the source of sought-after red ochre. Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition weaves red into the creation story by naming the first man Adam from the ancient words for red earth. He is made of the breath of the divine and the red dirt on which he stands, the same earth from which he and his wife needed to eke out their living after their expulsion from Eden, Eden. At least one scientist argues that red ochre helped early mankind do more than eke out a living. Carlos Duarte of Saudi Arabia's Abdullah University links evolution of the human brain to consumption of the omega-3 fatty acids of seafood and the high iron content of red ochre. He makes this connection because of the frequent unearthing of ochre-stained seashells at ancient archaeological sites and posits that pregnant women particularly would have gained resistance to anemia and born healthier babies with this superfood combination of nutrients. His theory is not universally accepted, but it opens a path of inquiry into why red ochre seems to be so intimately entwined with the lives of our ancestors.
0: Thank you, Keith. And that was Keith Recker reading from Deep Color, The Shades That Shape Our Souls. What exactly is red ochre?
2: Red ochre is an iron-based pigment that's found all over the world. So it's uh, it's usable as an artist pigment. It's usable to create glazes for ceramics. Uh, you can paint bodies with it without any deleterious effects. Um, yeah, super super ancient <laughs> as you can. For it.
0: So red is often like power ties are red. People, wear, you know, men yeah. wear a red power tie. Does it really evoke more power?
2: Well, that that reference that I made to that one study about rhesus macaque monkeys, right, stealing less from handlers wearing red than handlers wearing blue and green kind of leads you maybe into a little narrative line there about how red is a symbol of dominance, uh, an ancient symbol of dominance. In Western culture, at least, Charlemagne, right, the first Holy Roman Emperor, was crowned, gosh, the date always escapes me, 8th or ninth century, wearing red from head to toe from boots to hose, tunic to cape. And this power symbol was a super important moment uh, in terms of secular power, non-religious power, stepping up and claiming a kind of equality with hope. So this notion of red as, okay, I am in charge, has deep roots in Western society for sure. And I think that the red power tie is kind of what's left over from that moment <laughs> uh, of, you know, real supremacy, a real claiming of leadership and influence and power.
0: So is there a color of tie that uh, does the opposite?
2: Oh, what a good question. I would, you know, have to say probably a monochromatic approach, right, where your tie is pretty much the same color as your suit. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, our colds the navies, the grays, the blacks, the browns uh, kind of recede and are men's neutrals these days. Uh, I think red. there was a moment in the 80s, remember, when a a yellow tie was also thought to be a power tie. Um, And some folks thought that that might have been a reference to gold, you know, riches, the financial end of it. And um, there are still blue ties that are sometimes referred to as power ties as well. And that sort of touches upon uh, the history of blue in France, where the Capetian dynasty starts to adopt blue as its color. In part because woad, which was Europe's source for blue before indigo comes into global commerce, woad was very important uh, commercially in France, and um, the Capetian dynasty took this up. So the the gold flaredly on the blue ground, as the emblem of France is, is from that time. Saint Louis, who was Louis the Ninth, and his mother Blanche of Castile, blew up and really made it a big thing. So, blue, right, is an alternative uh, royal color to red. So, you have red, blue, and yellow. So is
0: woad a plant or mineral?
2: Yeah, woad is a plant. Woad is a plant. Woad is actually classed as an invasive species in the lower 48 states. Um, it comes to us from Europe, they say, in a shipment of Irish alfalfa to a California <laughs> horse ranch. <And laughs> it took root and took over. It's apparently very. Um, yeah, very invasive, very aggressive, uh, very hardy. It seeds quite a lot. And yeah, woad doesn't have as much indigo content as the indigo plant, the indigo for a tinctoria plant, the classic source of um, of blue. But woad is one of about 600 species of plants around the world that have the precursors to blue in their leaves.
1: So oh, interesting.
2: Yeah, pretty cool, right? So some of us, particularly in, in the in the West and in the Rockies, you know, there may be some woad plants growing out there in the fields and roadsides.
0: So what was the big deal about Obama wearing a tan suit? <laughs>
2: it was just something that you know I I think we're we, it sounds like we're both old enough to know <laughs> that, Franklin Roosevelt when he summered in Georgia right, at the Hot Springs, or Truman, wherever he went for the summer, or Eisenhower when he went to the Bahamas, it was not the first time a president wore a tan suit, yeah. right? It's just <laughs> possible that it was the first time that a president wore a tan suit. I think it was just something to complain about. It was just a
0: thing. <laughs> it seems like a pretty ridiculous yeah. thing to complain. He, I think he looked pretty good in that tan suit. Yeah, and, why not, right? Yeah.
2: Why not? Why not? Just a change of pace. But, you know, these days we're a very image-driven society, Mm -hmm. right? When you – those examples I mentioned about Eisenhower and Truman and Roosevelt, black-and-white photography predominated, and you didn't see as much. There there was more privacy, more mystery, because we were not inundated with social media and gossip shows in addition to 24-hour news and color photography in newspapers. And so, you know, maybe it was just a moment where this little thing that was – a change of pace, you know, was made into a big thing.
0: Ye- you mentioned yellow being a possible, you know, a brief moment of yellow as sort of a power color. Mm. But I know you, you talk about our emoji colors and the, the uh, how the smiley face became yellow. Can you tell us that, a little bit about that?
2: For sure. I, I, I love that. Uh, I love that branch of yellow's history, which is very complicated. Yellow is a very complicated color. Um, But that sunnier branch of yellow's history uh, comes about with Mr. Harvey Ball, who was hired by an insurance company who was having some morale problems. They had bought another insurance company. And in the course of the merger, there was a lot of unhappiness. Illustrator and graphic designer Harvey. And they say, okay, you know, help us out. We need a symbol that we can paste all over, turn into stickers, and just make everybody feel better. So in just a few minutes, he hand draws this yellow smiley face, which we're very familiar with today. And it takes off. He never really made any money on it. He was given just a few. Um, but it just sweeps the world. Uh, there, it, the copyright was held by somebody in Europe and uh, some brothers here in the United States. So somebody did make money on it, but just not Mr. Ball nor the insurance company for that matter. Um, The the smiley face does come into play in 1999 when the first set of emojis are designed by a Japanese designer named Shigetaka Kurita. And there's a direct link between the French copyright holder of the smiley face and Mr. Kurita's work. So there were 470 emojis based on the smiley face that were then licensed to, I think, a phone company in Japan called SoftBank, I think. And that's how the smiley face enters this contemporary age, right, with all the options on the cell phone and Facebook and Instagram and all this other, all these other uses.
0: Wow. Yeah. I feel sorry for that guy who invented it and never made any money
2: from it. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't seem to mind. I have to say, God bless him. He, he really seemed pretty melt. He didn't seem to mind.
0: Oh, that's His good. Children-
2: his children, I think, have had some um, some benefit from it, and they set up a foundation to try to do good works. so what a nice what a nice, optimistic family they seem to be.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: Do you want to touch on the color of diversity
0: on the color of diversity.
1: Um, yeah, like uh, the pinks and the purples and and how there's been the Identity struggle and connection against the LGBTQ and community.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's I. I, One of the things that I came to articulate across the writing, the research and writing of this book was that every, every color has its positive and negative poles of meaning. Um, And every color of course has some reassuring, simple things and some, you know, confrontational, complicated things. And you know, you're know you right, purple um, has this really interesting history of being the color of luxury and imperial life because in both Japan and uh, the Mediterranean in classical times, purple is extremely expensive to make and really the provenance of rulers and aristocrats. So in the Eastern Mediterranean, it, was, uh, it came from shellfish, Thousands and thousands and thousands of, of little crustaceans, little shellfish, had to die in order to make an ounce or two of purple dye. So this is called Tyrrhenian purple. It dates back to Phoenician times. And in Japan, the imperial purple comes from a um, root a plant, of a plant called purple gromwell. In both cases, the source of the purple dye was overharvested to the point where it was really no longer viable as a color, uh, as a dye color as a dye substance. So you've got this kind of super luxurious situation for purple. And one of the things that people ascribe to super rich, super influential people is eccentricity and bizarre behavior because they're free, freer to work outside the the rules. A lot of the rules of society, right? So Mm -hmm. purple on some elements of eccentricity and outre behavior and eventually gayness. You know, the gay slur to call somebody a pansy dates back well into the 19th century when things like pansy balls, which would be cross-dressing men and gay people and other people too, other urban dwellers, would go, for example, to Harlem for these major dance parties. And it was just a chance to have fun. And nobody cared. And these things existed for decades until a crackdown in the 1930s. And the crackdown in the 1930s, comes about in part because there was a very popular Broadway play, which was a love story between two women, one of them married, and eventually at the end of the play they choose to part so as not to create conflict and tragedy in their lives and their loved ones' lives. And the symbol of their parting is that they give each other bunches of violets. And this play had a pretty successful run until somehow somebody got a hold of it and started to create it into a cause in the press and the play was shut down and this furor, the violet sales of violets plunged. People used to wear little violet corsages on their furs. Violet sales plunged. And it gradually it, it gets so full of fervor that these balls are, um, raided and put out of business. So purple becomes this, this kind of symbol of gayness. And you end up in the 50s, not that long later, having something they called the lavender scare, which rent, right alongside the Red Scare when suspected communists were supposed to be purged out of government and society. Uh, Suspected gay people were purged out of State Department and other governmental agencies. Thousands of people lost their jobs based on rumor and innuendo and probably sometimes fact, right? But thousands of people lost their jobs because of these accusations of being gay in the Lavender Scare. Wow. So, yeah. And in the in the first gay pride marches in the late 60s after Stonewall and early 70s, lavender and purple were definitely in evidence as, you know, reappropriated as symbols of gay pride and gay power. And in the age of pink really took over, so you don't really hear much about <laughs> yeah. lavender these days. But Yeah.
0: yeah. You've been listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Keith Recker, author of Deep Color, The Shades That Shape Our Souls. Keith, in the few minutes we have left, uh, let's talk a little bit about your writing process. When you decided to write this book, um, did you have a lot of material already gathered, or, you know, how did you go about pulling it all together?
2: I did. I mean, I did have, uh, working in Color now for for almost 20 years, I did have a lot of material and kind of background. Um, the effort to make sure that it was based not just in repetition, but in fact, you know, creates a lot of research. So I'd say I would start off making an outline of the significant tropes that I thought needed to be covered with each color. I looked for really interesting anecdotes, interesting historical stories that had texture and personality that could really deliver uh, the meaning behind the, the origins of the trope and the meaning of the trope um, so that it would be a pleasure to read and perhaps even memorable. Right. Because it really is with stories and, uh, and a little bit of drama that we lodge things in our brain. Right. So. Right. So I I'll start with an outline. You all probably will chuckle. That outline changes 50 times before a chapter is done. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you write
0: one chapter at a time? Yes. That does
2: not mean I'm not taking up, putting them in folders, you know, to save for future efforts. But, yeah, I do try to focus on one chapter. At a
0: time. Right, right. And yeah. um, was there a certain sort of f- natural flow to each chapter going from like the history to the language to the you know more you know ancient history to more modern did you kind of use the same overall structure for each chapter
2: no i would i would say no each each chapter had its own personality and its own arc (laughs) um you know black you can't write about black the same way you can write about other hellers because of The primordial void, you know, because of the time before time, before the Big Bang, it's hypothesized that there was just this uniformly dense, uniformly hot, uh, zero light environment of just pure matter and energy or just pure energy. So I wanted to go back, you know, as far as that to talk about it. But pink and orange didn't really need that treatment, nor did green. You know, green really is the story of life as we know it on this planet. So... You start in an entirely different way. So everything seemed to have its own personality and its own arc.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. We're just about out of time. And are there more books coming our way?
2: Very possibly. Very <laughs> possibly. <laughs> and
0: will it be more on color, or are you going? Or are, are there other topics that you want to address?
2: There's a there's an idea brewing on color and. Um, and our friend's question about, you know, color as a symbol of diversity uh, it has something to do with it. I think that there is a story of um, color as a symbol of people and movements, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of maybe trying to tell that story.
0: Well, we look forward to that. And we always end with a quote and I think this one's pretty perfect for the for the topic today and it's from Marcus Aurelius. The soul becomes mm. dyed with the color of its thoughts.
2: Oh, oh gorgeous. Thank you for that. That's beautiful.
0: <laughs> and thank you for being with us and thank you for joining me, Danielle. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks,
2: and, It was a real pleasure. Thank you both so much.
0: And we'll see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you.